0: The term Laxbro has been out there for a while. Originally concocted at some off-season summer camp in the depths of Pennsylvania or Virginia or wherever, regardless of its origin, it's a derogatory reference to the stereotypical mid-Atlantic or northeastern lacrosse player. And despite the fact that it is, in many cases, an accurate reference, it's still a label that those of us who have been around the game and love the game find highly offensive. After all, as the saying goes, a few douchey apples don't spoil the whole bunch. What I do believe in is that there are lacrosse guys. And these are guys, and and girls, whose passion for the game resounds through their commitment to the sport and the amount of time they spend trying to grow the game and make it better for everybody. And in the state of Connecticut, Very few people come by the moniker lacrosse guy more than Bob Russell. I'm Woody Thompson, and this is Lax's Life. Bob Russell started his lacrosse career as a student-athlete at Cheshire Academy. He then traveled west to become part of the early evangelists of the game in Ohio and played at the now-legendary Upper Arlington High School outside of Columbus, Bob went on to play club ball at Ohio University, and over the years brought his well-known enthusiasm for the game to both the Philadelphia and Pittsburgh lacrosse clubs, before eventually moving back to Connecticut in 1983, landing in Madison, where he has been coaching youth lacrosse ever since. Bob served an unmatched tenure as president of the Connecticut New York Lacrosse Association, Otherwise known as Connie, and is now Connie President Emeritus. He's been named both Connecticut High School Lacrosse Coaches Association Man of the Year and the Connecticut Sports Writers Alliance Volunteer of the Year. Bob is now special counsel to the Intercollegiate Men's Lacrosse Coaches Association, where he oversees the IMLCA's finances, bylaw activities, and sponsor relationship. He served on the U.S. Lacrosse Executive Committee and Board of Directors as chair of the Men's Game Committee, where he leads the Post-Collegiate game Subcommittee. He serves on several charity boards, most notably the lacrosse-related Wounded Warrior Project and the Brendan Looney Foundation. Bob is an assistant coach for Daniel Hand High School in Madison, and in 2016 he was inducted into the Connecticut Lacrosse Hall of Fame. And Bob Russell is our guest on Lax's Life today. Bob, welcome to the podcast.
1: Thank you, Woody. I'm excited to be with you.
0: So listen, we are talking pretty nonstop about the way 2020 has gone for the kids, the college guys, the the girls, the college girls, even obviously the uh, MLL and PLL is being affected, but You know, I wanted to start off really where you and I met um, was through the Connecticut New York Youth Lacrosse Association, better known as Connie, of course. And I wanted to just talk about the youth game in Connecticut specifically, Um, you know, your tenure um, was is really unparalleled there. And the amount of time that you spent along with a few others to make sure that this thing grew to what it has become is just so essential to so many players and, and coaches and, and the, the game itself. Let's talk a bit about, Connie, when you started, what was it like, and, and where has it come? And even now as President Emeritus, How do you look back at Connie and and see what it is? And and what are your thoughts comparatively back to the early days?
1: Well, believe it or not, if we were playing this spring, it would have been Connie's 30th anniversary. And we had a pretty robust marketing uh, ideas for helmet stickers and some other things. But uh, uh, the coronavirus uh, changed that like it changed... uh, uh, life for the whole game, but we started with a handful of programs uh, and a couple of guys from Greenwich uh, really started it and I got in year two. So I guess I've been at it 28, 29 years. And uh, it's really remarkable. I mean, we're at about 15,000 boys and girls uh, playing in Connie right now. We've got uh, feelers out from programs in Western Mass about joining and uh, uh, a couple of programs on the Connecticut Rhode Island border. And, uh, you know, one thing I think we all take great pride in is we're a completely volunteer run organization. You know, I know all the years you were involved. Um, you know, you got the big paycheck like I did, but uh, we have uh, we have watched it grow exponentially. Uh, we merged uh, with the girls some years ago, and we had terrific leadership from um, a lady in Greenwich named Lisa Hurst, who kind of seamlessly integrated. Uh, The girls and with the boys. And uh, we've really done, I think, a very good job of keeping it separate but equal. Um, It's a whole different uh, thing on assigning uh, the boys than it is assigning the girls. And, uh, you know, we've got the fees all in line, but we've got separate uh, assigners for officials, which has worked out great. But, we continue to just be very fortunate with just wonderful volunteer leadership. I mean, across the board, from you know Westchester out to the Rhode Island border, uh, there there are all really good people involved.
0: And that's and one of the things. If I if I do go back and I look at you know what Connie is and what what it had always has stood for is a municipal, if you will, a town-based program run by volunteers. These are not club programs. No one's making money. Um, the, you know, there may be paid coaches here and there, but this is not a club program. And then Connie always has held steadfast to that. And that, frankly, is one of the things I think that has been so great in the advent of so much club lacrosse where people have to pay exorbitant amounts of money for their sixth grader to get seen by college coaches or whatever's going on out there.
1: Yeah. I mean, and, um, the biggest distraction that I think we as volunteers see are some of the club programs. And I want to be fair and not indict all of them, but some of the club programs would like nothing better than to watch Connie evaporate uh, into nothing so they could take over and, and run for profit in the spring. And that's something we've all stood uh, very patterned on, that we do not want to be in the for profit business. Well, there always seemed uh, to
0: be there always seemed to be a good balance between the clubs allowing Connie to exist kind of through the really ostensibly the high school season and then the clubs would take over for the summer where kids were going to camps or tournaments or what have what have you. Has that changed at all in the past few years?
1: No. In, in fact it's probably gotten more rigid uh we worked with a couple of the club programs. And after the Connie tournament at Yale, uh, which is now three weekends, uh, it's a hard stop for Connie, and the club programs can do what the club programs want to do. Uh, and uh, that, that's been a, a good, uh, that's been a good way to coexist with some of the club operators. And again, you know, we've seen some of them push the envelope um, and, and would like us to just disappear off the face of the earth. But I think that's the exception rather than the rule. But there's so much money to be made, you know, by discretionary cash that a lot of these parents have uh, and would like nothing better than to see their fifth grader, you uh, you know, get recruited uh, <laughs> yes. at, at Army, Navy, or at Hopkins. Sure,
0: <laughs> which is and, which is which which isn't that far from the truth. Sometimes I think.
1: Yeah, and, and we've talked a lot about it from a college coaching standpoint at the INLCA, uh, which has been really helpful. Uh, and, and the NCAA has been terrific in terms of. Uh, cutting down the recruiting window so it's manageable now. And it's not like basketball that's 12 months a year. Um, so we've got a lot of external forces with us being the college coaches and the NCAA. And, and I think, you know, we hold Connie up as kind of a gold standard for, um, you know, Town-based youth
0: programs. All right, so let's let's climb the ladder then a little bit and go to that next level, which is high school lacrosse. And as the father of uh, three very good high school players, uh, probably in, in all due fairness to two of your sons, Matt Russell, one of the legendary Connecticut high school players, uh, not just because of his career at Fairfield Prep, but also at uh, the U.S. Naval Academy. And uh, certainly your other two sons uh, acquitted themselves quite well, but beyond your personal experience as a parent of players, you've coached uh, at the high school level and continue to coach at the high school level, uh, Daniel Hand High School as an assistant there. What, do you see um, at that next level? How are kids coming in? Are they more skilled? Are the numbers in Madison uh, what you're used to them being? Has the game grown in popularity? That's a lot of questions, Bob, but I know you can answer each and every one of them.
1: I I think in kind of reverse order, um, we, like all sports, are seeing a decline in enrollment Uh, at the high schools. That's not unique to Madison, Um, but we're very blessed uh, in terms of with the tight linkage between Madison youth lacrosse and the high school program, and I'm very fortunate to be the assistant for a guy named John Orlando, who was an attackman for Jack Emmer at West Point, and uh, John does a remarkable job of not only coaching the high school team, but coaching the eighth graders uh, in Madison. So we really, are very fortunate having a kind of a seamless transition from the youth. Um, from a skill standpoint, uh, like every town in probably the U.S., uh, the parents are the biggest challenge. Uh, And again, I don't want to get out over my skis too far, but uh, a number of these parents that have spent, you know, what I would say ridiculous sums of money trying to get their kids into recruiting events and playing on club programs, I think have a real false expectation on kids showing up, you know, making it to the next level. You know, just because you started in fifth grade playing on a summer club team doesn't entitle you to play on a high school team, and um, that's very hard for some set of parents to really digest and understand
0: yeah, you know uh, in that funnel that the funnel of participation, regardless of enrollment, it's really interesting when you watch it narrow over the years right I mean the the biggest opportunity and the biggest numbers are at the youth level um, and at the in some cases at the earlier ages, but when towns have three or four you know, 7th and 8th grade teams, or U13, or even U15 teams, and then all those kids fall in love with the game and go to high school, the reality of it is not everybody's making the team. And then you transfer forward from that, and not everybody's playing in college, whether you love it or not. And sometimes, as you say, it's the parents who don't understand that at some point it's got to end.
1: Most of my parents in Madison are phenomenal. They're very supportive. They know how much I've been involved in the game. They certainly know John's credentials from playing for Jack Emmer at West Point. So I, I think the pressure is a, a little lower on us as a coaching staff. Uh, but I really feel for some of the younger high school coaches around the s- state that uh, really have a, a set of parents that, that have really, really too high expectations. Um, and, I mean, it, it's pretty obvious which programs those are. But I think very quickly kids see it before the parents do. And we've seen some of the noisier families where the kid chooses to deselect from the game of lacrosse, as opposed to the parents choosing to deselect, which is a phenomena that I never quite picked up on as a parent when my kids were in high school, uh, <clears throat> but the kids are all pretty grounded uh, in terms of you know who's going to play and who's not, and you've always got some late bloomers, which is um, which is always fun to watch. I mean, I. Had a couple of kids last year in Madison that had a hard time throwing and catching at the beginning of the season. And then a couple of them went on to be, you know, second team All State by the end of the year, just basically on sheer hustle. Uh, And and that's in the kids' DNA. That's nothing that the coaches are doing or nothing that the parents are doing. That's, you know, the the kids basically maturing, uh, which is. Probably one of the reasons I stay involved. which is so much fun to watch Uh, I actually have a really good time with the kids Uh, John's kind of a disciplinarian and I'm kind of a goofball assistant that can be the hard, you know, nose guy when I have to be but um, I really enjoy it for the most part and I, I think the kids now that we've been at it, John and I, for a couple of years, um, know what to expect.
0: It sounds and, and, like... You know, sorry. I was just going to say, it sounds like you have good training for your status as a grandfather as well with that with that disciplinary and at-one-level approach, and you get to come in and be the fun guy.
1: Yeah, no, that's exactly right. I mean, <clears throat> I can't wait to watch my grandkids play. I mean, I've got more sticks um, at... You know, two of my kids' houses have kids that are now walking, and every one of my extra sticks in the garage, uh, you know, have made it to their garages. You know, so it's it, it, it's gonna be a, it's gonna be a fun ride down the road. I'm I'm excited. I'm, I'm also serious. in. I'm also intrigued <clears throat> on the girls' game, which is something I know absolutely nothing about, zero and having a couple of granddaughters, and my oldest, uh, she will be the first one to play. uh, You know, getting the right colored headband and uh, the right colored stick is paramount. um, Is paramount compared to, uh, you know, learning the game. So it's a whole different thing than raising boys. But... uh, I, I, I'm excited to do that.
0: I do recall a period of time back in the '70s when the first um, fluorescent plastic sticks came out. That <clears throat> the guys we we were just as interested in what color stick we could get as as any as any uh, female player. So I think that cuts both ways there. Um, hey, I, I know that you're an assistant at Daniel Hand, and and John runs the program. But give us an idea. One of the things we've been doing here is. Um, you know for the, the missed season uh, are there any seniors at hand who are who are moving on to play at the next level and do you know that and is that something you can tell us where some of these guys are going to end up
1: we've had a really good feeder system into a couple of the NESCAC schools uh, our best defenseman for the last couple of years is now at Colby Um We've got uh, kids kind of smattered all over everywhere. Uh, you know, we do not have anybody in in D1, but uh, we have a half dozen kids that I think will be impact players when they get to college. Uh, but you know, just to digress for a second, this whole pandemic has has just flopped so many things upside down. I mean, and now that the NCAA is granting um, the seniors a fifth year, there's a compression issue coming. All these kids that are going in to be freshmen in college are now having to compete with the kids that are staying for a fifth year. Right. So it's going to really interesting to see how this thing plays out over time. Well, and that's uh, one
0: of the things I wanted to talk to you about because of your role with the IMLCA and working with the college coaches where there are I'm sure some cases where coaches are they're just as happy to get a guy back for a fifth year. I bet you there's a lot of scenarios in which it has been a royal pain in the butt for them.
1: Yeah, no it has and then you know uh, we're very close with John Tillman uh, personally, you know, he he was a big part of recruiting uh, my son to the Naval Academy. And he just lost his very best player who wants to play football in his fifth year. And, you know, he, he said that just came completely out of the blue. Uh, but a lot of kids, you know, they don't want to go on and get jobs, especially in, in this shaky job market. So it's convenient to stay you know, in school an extra year. And um, it, it'll really be interesting because just by way of background, I got involved at the inception of the college coaches, uh, uh, the INLCA uh, through Coach AC out at the Air Force Academy. Uh, little known fact, but I refed college hockey for about 22 years and was the national president of uh, the National Ice Hockey Officials Association and was close with the Air Force coach. And then the Air Force hockey coach hooked me up with Coach A C who said, well, you've done this before with hockey, and I've been at it ever since with lacrosse. And uh, <clears throat> then we ended up uh, uh, just through serendipity, with Matt going to play for Coach Meade at the Naval Academy. Um, and, and Richie's been a long-time president. But, uh, you know, we're, re- we're all represented. I mean, the current president is a Wilton guy uh, who's won a couple of national championships at Limestone. Um, and, and, and it's really fun to listen to the discussion because um, our board meetings are really free form in that there's a lot of things going on in this world affecting college athletics right now. You know, and the most recent thing, I think you saw, you know, Brown got rid of 11 different sports. Uh, Furman got rid of baseball and lacrosse. They've been playing baseball at Furman since 1875. And it's just, you know, budgetary with the the coronavirus. (laughs) And I think, um, I was actually talking to J.B. Clark today, and, and we both think this is just the tip of the iceberg for university administrators. The easy thing to cut is sports you don't know anything about, uh, which is what I think happened at Furman and what I think the new president at Brown had done uh, uh, on their cuts. And, and I'm fairly certain that, uh, that we are going to see uh, between now and fall ball a couple other college programs drop off the face of the earth in lacrosse.
0: Well, Bob, I uh, think the reality of it is is it's not going to be limited to sports or lacrosse. We're going to see a couple of colleges fall off the face of the earth for the next 10, 12, 15 years. I, I have little doubt that the small liberal arts college that isn't Uh, an elite school with a major endowment and an alumni association who continuously contributes to that endowment, I have little faith that schools like those are going to be able to survive. Um, Kids are choosing to go to bigger schools. The kids who aren't playing sports, as that enrollment goes down and that participation goes down, Kids who want to go play D three football or D three basketball or D three lacrosse, those numbers are weirdly going to drop, and the the rationale to go to college in general uh, is is under fire. So uh, I I agree with you. You're going to see a lot of sports go off the go off the board. But I think the real concern is whether a lot of these universities, small universities, are going to be able to stay intact.
1: No, I. I agree, especially uh, especially some of these, you know, non nescac schools or non-Liberty League schools that you know are charging sixty or seventy thousand dollars a year, you know, full boat for for a, a kid to go to school there. So,
0: how how are these coaches that you're dealing with that are part of this organization? How are they viewing, whether it's the five years, um, whether it's the, the, the uncertainty of kids being on campus, how are they viewing the game and their scheduling and their facilities? Uh, are, would you say that the major programs are solid or would you, do you believe that even at schools like Maryland or, or Ohio state or North Carolina, that, that there is some cause for concern?
1: Um, I think there's cause for concern at maybe 10% of the major institutions, uh, that we consider major lacrosse schools, uh. I know that some of their assistants are really under siege salary-wise, and to make matters worse, people can't get out and commute. I mean, uh, they can't recruit, you know, they can't commute to recruit, and and that's really been uh, an optic that was was lost on me Uh, in, in terms of if you're a really good high school kid, I mean, how many separate phone calls do you want to take as opposed to having, you know, Joe Bresci or John Tillman come into your living room? You know, the, 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 this is still very much of a face to face business, just like, you know, the the business world that you and I are in.
0: Yeah. It's going to be really interesting. Um, you know, it kind of brings us back to a time where only a few schools were recruiting that way, but, you know, having had a son go through the division three recruiting process, I, I know that it was something completely unlike what I went through when I played. And I'm sure that, you know, it, it's going to happen. It, it, it Coaches have a great network. They'll talk to each other about different kids and what that kid can bring to their program. And they will field teams. But I'm sure they won't feel as certain about the incoming classes as they are when they get to get out on that circuit and go to King of the Hill and, and the various uh, blue chip camps.
1: Yeah, no, that's exactly right. And and I think I can feel the frustration level building with these guys because usually our board calls are about 45 minutes, and and now to get somebody like Billy Kearney to stay on a telephone call for an hour and a half, um, you know, two years ago that just would have never happened.
0: I think an hour and a half is about the average time that his team used to hang on to the ball and just pass it around before taking a shot. So he's pretty used to that hour and a half.
1: Yeah, no, I, I, I got it. Uh,
0: Thanks. uh, Thanks.
1: I I just wanted to slip that in. They're all over the board in terms of this NCAA issue. Um, uh, on the fifth year, I mean, I've heard all of the pros and all the cons, and um, some guys I really respect really think this was a bad move uh, <coughs> to, to give them the fifth year. And then some other guys I really respect think it's the best thing in the world that happened to them because it, it lets their kids mature. So it, it'll be next next season – you know, if we have a next year season, will be really fascinating to watch Uh, because some of the new, younger, smaller programs that, you know, you and I grew up, you know, questioning, well, hey, how does Danny Chiamatti, you know, get Richmond so good so quick, you know, they're quietly recruiting away like crazy. And there's five or six other programs that – Are, are just going full, full, uh, full speed ahead to, uh, to recruit, and it's frankly easier to get kids to go to a quote unquote not named school because they've got in their own mind a higher probability of playing.
0: Well, that's what it's all about. I mean, and I think, you know, where I come down on the fifth year is that these guys who really didn't get a chance to play as seniors, if they want to stay in college for another year and they can stay and that works out for them, then by gosh, let's let's give them a chance to, to finish out their college careers and not rip that senior uh, year away from them. Bob Uh, We are up against it. I want to thank you very much uh, for your perspective. And, uh, you know, as I said in the open, um, when we talk about lacrosse guys, uh, not just in the state of Connecticut, but when we talk about lacrosse guys, uh, we talk about people like Bob Russell. So thanks again for coming by, and uh, we will catch up with you further down the road.
1: Woody, thanks for having me. I enjoyed it very much. Best to you and the family. You as well.
0: Well, like I said, very few people in the state of Connecticut have come close to the Bob Russell resume and the number of uh, touch points, really, that he has put forth to impact the game. He supports the game. He supports the players. Uh, The guy has opinions. He gets things done. And uh, I think a lot of us who have been around him have been amazed at the capacity he has shown to push forward. Uh, as the sport continues to grow, we hope you enjoyed today's segment on Wax's Life, and we hope to see you again for another one down the road.
2: One of the cool parts about lacrosse is that there are people who have grown up with the game and then go on to make it their life's work. Maybe not as a player, although there certainly are options to keep playing as you get older, but I'm really talking about the people whose connection to the sport draws them back into it, not just as a hobby, but as the very thing that defines them. There are towns across this country that have benefited from these dedicated lacrosse disciples. In some cases, it's from people who never left home and have made it their business to give back to the lacrosse culture in the very place where they grew up. Then you have the Johnny Appleseeds of the lacrosse world, people who spread the gospel of the game far and wide, from San Diego to Seattle to Dallas to Atlanta. Then there are those who have stayed closer to home. But for one reason or another, they find themselves in nearby towns other than where they grew up, with fledgling programs that don't have the tradition or the pedigree that was in place where they originally came to love and learn the game. And it's these people that might be the most admirable of the bunch. The people who take the game in a place where it has gained little or no foundation over the years and make the effort to build it from the ground up. I'm Woody Thompson, and this is Lax's Life. Brian McLaughlin was a two-sport All-American in both soccer and lacrosse at Wilton High School. He went on to play both sports at the University of Notre Dame and was a two-times all-conference midfielder on the lacrosse team. After graduating as one of the Irish's all-time leaders in points for a midfielder, Brian spent four years as an assistant coach in South Bend and then three more years at the University of Massachusetts where he also earned his master's degree in sports science. And that's when I met Brian. We worked together at a sports marketing agency for a little over nine years. And then Brian found his way back to the game he loved. After a brief stint as the head boys lacrosse coach at Stratford High School, the 2020 season would have been his first at the helm of crosstown rival Bonnell High School. Brian coaches club lacrosse on both the girls' and boys' side, and true to his nature, brings a very grounded approach to his involvement in the sport. And Brian McLaughlin is our guest on Lax's Life Today, Brian, welcome to the podcast.
3: Woody, good to talk to you, man. Thanks for having me.
0: All right, so listen, I figured we'd start off talking about a little bit of your progression. Um, You know, a Wilton guy, uh, goes to Notre Dame primarily to play soccer, ends up back uh, playing a big role, really, on the lacrosse team there uh, in the early 90s. And then um, when you came back home, graduated, you're in the corporate world for a while. And then for those of us who love the game of lacrosse, it's, uh, it's a blessing to have you back in lacrosse knee deep so you live in Stratford you're the head coach at Stratford High and you make the decision to go cross town to Bunnell, uh one of their you know well probably their biggest rival high schools seeing as how they're neighbors um, you know what prompted that and, and what's the transition been like
3: uh, it's been a challenge certainly um, I have not made many friends on the Stratford High do- side doing it but uh, you know what? The real reason for it, Woody, was because, um, you know, I had 19 players on my uh, team at Stratford High and uh, in my last year, and one was a senior, and nine of them were juniors. Um, so that would have been – so the class of 2020 at Stratford High had nine rising seniors. Um, the opportunity opened at Bunnell, and the only reason I took it was because I thought the long-term viability of the program was better at Stra- at Bunnell, excuse me, because I had a, a pretty good pulse on the youth program. I had coached uh, a couple of teams in the Stratford youth program, and I knew where the kids were coming up and where they were districted. Um, and like, like I said, I didn't make many friends by doing it because, you know, after a couple years of years at Stratford, I had just implemented a system, and things were going well, and Now all of a sudden I kind of leave and go cross town, and again, it was really, people don't see this, but I saw it as for the benefit of the sport long-term in Stratford.
0: So, you know, let's let's actually backtrack a bit. Uh, In my day uh, in the Connie years, um, one of our great rivalries in youth for Newtown was with Stratford, and the program was run by a friend of mine named, you may know him, named Pat Corcoran. Uh, and, yeah. and Pat's son, Patrick, and his son, Ryan, yeah. and uh, kids like Lance Hunt and, and uh, the, you know, the Mulligans. And, you know, really, uh, there were some excellent players coming out of that youth program. And there were a lot of kids in the youth program. Uh, What are the numbers like in Stratford youth right now, and is that what led to 19 kids on the Stratford High team, or is it just a general uh, attrition over the years?
3: Well, I think it's been a combination of a bunch of things. Um, The Stratford youth numbers have been down um, the past few years. Um, You know, juniors and seniors at the youth level have been able to field teams, but you will get you know the, at the younger ages, it seems to be taking longer and longer to get kids into the sport. Um, so we might not have a bantam team one year or you know we're combining you know the, the fifth and sixth graders you know into one team. Um, so it's been a little bit of a challenge from a numbers perspective. Um, to be honest, and well, And then when you look at Stratford and you get two high schools, and so you have a a senior team at the youth level that's barely got, you know, 15 players on it, and now you're splitting those kids uh, into two, you know, sending them to two different high schools, and then you throw the St. Joe's and the Fairfield preps into the mix. Now all of a sudden your class of, you know, eight or seven goes down to four or five. And, you know, whether those kids are real, you know, long-term lacrosse players and really passionate about the sport, or whether they're just, you know, playing, you know, to, to do something and, and yeah. might not be as athletic as, as other kids. That's fine. I'm, I'm happy to take those kids. But in terms of growing a program and trying to, you know, look, there's a difference between building a program and trying to build a winning program. Um, I come from a little bit of a, a winning background, meaning, you know, Look, I played lacrosse at Walton High School. You know, I played played at the Division One level, and I even coached at the Division One level. And so, I have a little bit different mentality. I love to be competitive, and I love to win. But at the same time, I I think these days, especially where I am, it's you have to take a little bit, look at it through a little bit different lens. You know, yeah. you want to get, you got to get the numbers up. You have to get kids involved. You have to get them to start loving the sport. Um, and so, I've had to change my a lot of my approach and my coaching style and, and my temperament um, over the past few years.
0: Yeah. You know, it's interesting. We talk a lot about uh, lacrosse culture uh, and, you know, I I'm, you know haven't made any bones about it. I'm a Long Island guy and it was easy for me because that just was always part of the culture in my town and in virtually every town that surrounded me, you know, in Connecticut, uh, outside of Fairfield County, especially, Um, You know, there is lacrosse culture and it's been it's been slow to develop over the past, you know, 40 years since I got out of high school. But I think, um, you know, what I always point to in wonderment is New Fairfield and what has happened in New Fairfield, because when I moved to Connecticut in 1998 and I watched New Fairfield High School play and, and Marty was the coach. I was, you know, I was aghast at the quality of play and what he was able to develop in you know roughly 10 years you know in 19 uh, 2008 was the the big cj costabile senior year when that team was with sean macy and players that were just you know incredible and they would have run rough shot over everybody is my theory that year but that town has developed and really this is marty's doing i think to a great extent with a lot of support but they've developed a lacrosse culture um, you know, I, I like to think that in Darien or even in Wilton, it's it's easy because it's 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 part of, you know, the people who live there. But these guys developed it out of nothing. And yep. when you had when you had, the, you know, Pat Corcoran and, and his group running in, and you had a group of guys that were growing up together. That's like a groundswell. And, you know, you just – Stratford may be missing that groundswell of kids who have decided that lacrosse is their thing because God knows the town has athletes. They're successful in other sports. Um, you know, I remember days when, you know, Bennell's football team was – always super strong I mean, they've always got yep. they've always got great players and the challenge is just taking those athletes showing them the beauty of the game and trying to instill in them at a young age that hey this is something that's great to do in the spring as opposed to sitting in the dugout chewing sunflower seeds
3: yeah and you know uh, we found woody you know like i said i've been and i haven't been involved in high school sports here in Stratford since i've been here but I followed it to some degree. Um, I found that it's very cyclical, and you know the two high school thing um, has certainly played a role in that. And then when you have the successes of the schools like Fairfield Prep and St. Joe's, which are right down the street from us, um, they they will they are not afraid to come in and, and grab some some of the higher the better athletes. So it's it's been a challenge. We are you know we are noticing or you know. I, this is hard to say and you know I, I know you mentioned you know Strafford had some successes in the past but I, I question what the athlete where all the, all the athletes are you know like I certainly have kids on my team who can play and who are who are athletic but it seems like the number of kids or the percentage of kids who are athletes and I, I don't want to generalize it and say this generation but in this cycle you um, they seem to be doing other things because I've talked to baseball coaches I've talked to football coaches you know in town um both at Stratford and Benel and it's been a challenge just getting good players to come out or good athletes to come out and you know you might get the kid and i don't know if this is a product of 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 these these kids nowadays focusing on one sport um you know uh, it, the club aspect of 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 sports all across um, different platforms has totally you know, affected numbers.
0: Yeah, but we can go ahead. We can go ahead.
3: Club coaches who are telling kids, you got to play nine months of the year. You have to get this exposure. We have these tournaments in the offseason.
0: Let's definitely poke poke the finger there at basketball and soccer because I think that's the preponderance of this. That's, you know, kids may want to go to a football passing camp in the spring and and they may, you know, they may play fall baseball, but the fact of the matter is that soccer, the pressure on a kid to play soccer year-round or you're just not going to be any good, and the AAU basketball scene takes kids out of other sports, but, you know, participation in general in in high school sports is down, you know, per capita. Yeah. It's not just a population thing. So I think they're definitely... There's definitely something there about kids doing other things. And, you know, certainly I don't know whether, you know, video games are to blame or the the rising, uh, you know, instance of, you know, obesity and, and young adults and things like that. God knows pot kettle black can't really throw stones inside my glass house there. So I'll be careful with that one. But it is one of the challenges. I mean, I I spent a lot of time trying to grab kids off the football and the soccer field from the fall and tell them that lacrosse would be a great sport for them. And, uh, you know, football people get very anxious as kids get older about uh, a kid playing a sport where he's going to run and run and run and run. And if he's a bigger kid, he's going to lose weight. And is he in the weight room enough? Is he bulking up? And then the soccer people, you know, love the game. I love soccer, but I, I absolutely hate what they've done um, to to this this single sport mentality, and we certainly don't have the World Cup victories to prove that it's a good good way for us to go.
3: Yeah, and you know, and you mentioned it before, um, you know, about you know Stratford missing the groundswell. I think I think it's a culmination. <clears throat> excuse me, it's a culmination of a lot of things. You know, you got the two high schools, you got the private schools. Um, you know, my my. One of my best friends, Dave Estrella, is the guy who runs the youth program. And I've been, you know, involved with him. He lives down the street from me. You know, I've been involved with him for the past five or six years on how do we attract more kids into the program? How do we build Stratford Youth Lacrosse? And we have tried to do anything and everything from, you know, donating equipment to free tuition to summer clinics to off-season camps to – you know working with the community center um in town you know anything to just get kids to put a stick in their hand cuz once they put the stick in their hand then they then they can learn learn for themselves and and feel how fun it can be and now all of a sudden you throw the running component into it and you know with guys you get to say okay you now you get to hit people and yes. you know which obviously you can't do with the youth age but you know they see it and they they can gravitate to it but for one reason or another, we're just not getting the numbers, I used to, uh, and it's frustrating.
0: I used to go up to linemen uh, in youth football after games, and and you know the kids who would play like you know eight downs total, and say, uh, "So, what position do you want to play in football?" And they look at you and they say, "I want to play running back." And I said, "Man, I'll tell you what, play lacrosse because at some point, everybody's a running back." And uh, I I think that was successful in many occasions. Uh, And, you know, the reality of it is we can't in this discussion, in this topic, we cannot discount the role of the parent and parents both, uh, you know, through their actions, making kids disinterested in sports because it's way too intense and and judgmental. But it's also, you know, a parent encouraging a, a kid to try something new or uh, or maybe something even that his friend is doing uh, that he would like to do, but that the parent doesn't really understand because they were a baseball guy or the kid's a good soccer player and they don't want to not have that starting position come the fall. Brian, I wanted to talk a little bit about your, your background. As I said, you know, uh, Wilton High School, uh, outstanding soccer and lacrosse player. So good on you there for the, being the two-sport athlete, which I was definitely not. I was barely a one sport athlete. I've, I've come to that realization. (laughs) So you go to, you go to Notre Dame to play soccer. Um, You quickly realize that there's more to the world than soccer. And and I'm sure, you know, you were still a standout player uh, for the Irish uh, on the soccer pitch, but how did lacrosse come back into the picture for you at Notre Dame? And, And what was the experience like getting there and, and then getting back into it?
3: Um, it's very funny. You know, I was, I was very torn in high school as to, um, what I wanted to do and what I wanted to play. I was obviously recruited, um, for different schools, to different schools for different sports. Um, and my last, my last two choices came down to, uh, um, playing soccer at Notre Dame or playing lacrosse at Brown. Um, and I loved, this is when Dom Sargent was there. I love Dom. Um, you know, I, I, I really would have enjoyed playing for him. I know because that was when they had Darren Lowe and Andy Towers, and they, they were a ridiculous team back then. Um, but I had set my sights on Notre Dame as a kid and, you know, had been there a bunch of times uh, throughout high school and really um, wanted to go. So I wound up playing soccer out there. Um, the circumstances around lacrosse were a little unusual. Um, I had a tough uh, initial six months um, at, because about two weeks before leaving for school, leaving for uh, preseason camp uh, my mom was diagnosed with lymphoma um, which kind of hit me uh, you know I don't know if it hit me hard or just as a youth I didn't know how to handle it um, so you know soccer season was challenging in, Ways other than just on the field and dealing with a new school and dealing with a new environment, you know now I had to worry about what was going on at home, oh, and by the way, my parents were moving from Connecticut to California at the time, so you know all of it kind of culminated and and it just made for a challenging fall season and I had known Kevin Corrigan, he had come to see me play at Wilton, he knew I was going to an ordername to play soccer. He said, "Hey, come knock on my door when you get out there just to chat and would love to see you and I went to go see him at the end of the fall season, and um, knocked on his door, and we had a great conversation. And, you know, I decided, like, hey, uh, I'm going to go out in January and, and start practicing with the guys, and told my soccer coach, who, you know, ironically was, I mean, he got he was fine with it. Ironically, he got fired about two weeks later. So once that happened, uh, you know, I stepped on the lacrosse field in January and kind of never looked back. Um You know, I I was was able to have some success as a freshman out there. Um, I had gotten my feet wet as far as being in school and being a freshman and knowing what the expectations were. And, plus, I had been through a a competitive season already. So I knew kind of what to expect with the upcoming spring. Um, We weren't a great team, but we had some good players. You know, we had some kids from prep, and I was, you know, I I think I was the second Wilton kid to go to Notre Dame. Um, but they had kids from good schools and, you know, so we, you know, throughout my four years there, it was a pretty big progression in terms of where the sport went. Um, Kevin was in his second year of coaching and, you know, by the time, you know, the year after I graduated was the, uh, or two years after I graduated was the year we beat Duke for, in the first round of the playoffs. So it, it was, it was great to be a part of that, um. And, you know, something I look back on with a lot of great memories, and I'm, and I'm glad it worked out the way it did.
0: I realize now that bringing up the name C.J. Costabile probably uh, stung you a little bit there. Yeah, then. you
3: could you could have chosen, you know, maybe a different one to go there with, but I'm fine with it, you know. It hey, was a, it hey, was... That, was, that was a great game, and obviously was rooting hard for Notre Dame. I think that was, what, 14, 2014? I lose track of the
0: years, Brian, as they uh, as they pass me by. But I, I think we all looked at it. You know, I remember watching CJ as a seventh grader uh, running up and down the field against uh, like a Newtown, you know, junior team, and was like, "Oh, oh, good lord, <laughs> this this young man uh, is very talented." We didn't have any. We had yeah, some good you know, those, players, but those we didn't
3: kids, have. Those kids stand, tend to stand out even at the young ages, and you know it's, it's he was a phenomenal player and and you know Duke certainly deserved to win it that year I can't can't take anything away from him
0: No doubt all right so you know I we haven't even brought up uh you know the reason why you didn't actually get to coach your first season at Bunnell and uh you know this this uh COVID-19 pandemic and the impact that it's had on spring sports and probably is continuing to have on on summer I know that there are uh, there are tournaments for club teams that are taking place. So, um, you know, how, how those are impacted by some of the recent spikes that we've been seeing in the past, you know, week or week or two weeks, uh, in yep. some of those States. Uh, I know you're, you're involved in, in the club game and, uh, you know, what are, what's, what's your t- club's uh, position on what's happening this summer?
3: Well, right now, you know, um, So I've done the club thing for about three or four years now. I think this might be the fourth year I've really had the club in existence. Um, And there are some there are some unique challenges that go along with having a summer club lacrosse program based in Stratford. Um, You know, I have not had. You know, it's not like I'm um, charging kids. You know, three grand a year, and you know, I'm I'm getting double A players and. You know, we're, we're traveling and playing against the Team 91s of the world. It's a little bit of a lower tier level, which is totally fine. I get kids who, you know, want to want to keep playing, and that's absolutely uh, – I love coaching them, and we have a great time doing it. Um, this year, as you mentioned, it, it has been a little bit more of a challenge. Um, some of the tournaments that maybe we would have done in the past either are canceled or Um, I'm getting a lot of, not a lot of pushback, but some questions from parents, like, are we doing this? You know, do we really need to go and stay overnight? Um, Connecticut has kind of taken, or at least a lot of the club teams, uh, myself included, have kind of taken the approach, like, let's try and stay as local as possible, uh, meaning stay in state, um, try and find those one-day tournaments that will limit, um, the, you know, first of all the cost, but also the overnights and the hotel stays that you know parents and families might be more concerned about, um, and really just try and give kids some type of you know playing experience that they're still going to get something out of it. They want to play against other kids. They want to practice during the week. Um, you know, and and so that's you know basically what I'm trying to provide for them now. Um, you know, in terms of the number of tournament days, and you know, a, a lot of that is still up in the air because. You know, we don't know what's going to happen in four weeks, much less, um, you know, next week. You know, the governor might come down and say, you know, we need to shut things down again or, you know, all sports are off. Who who knows? Yeah. So I we're mean... trying to tread lightly with this, Wood, but at the same time – um, I'm trying to I'm trying to still provide some type of experience because kids, you know, kids haven't played lacrosse in, you know, uh, over a year.
0: My son commented that it was like everybody tore their ACL at once. Um, so, <laughs> uh, you know, it's weird. Exactly. I, I wonder why, especially for programs like like, you know, just what's going on in Stratford or or other towns where maybe it's not about recruiting and it's not about playing on the most elite team possible. But, you know, when I grew up, there were summer leagues. And, you know, yeah, it was primarily uh, town based, but I'm not sure why we can't get together, you know, eight or ten teams, whether it's youth or high school age. And, and just simply play as, you know, a couple times a week and you have a practice or two and you play a game on the weekend and, and that's that's what it is. know, Does it have to be about traveling to Maryland or uh, Rhode Island or upstate New York to, to have a tournament and be seen by college coaches? My theory always was I, I wanted my son to play lacrosse to get better for the next year. Certainly there came a time where I wanted, if he wanted to play in college, I wanted a, a coach to see him. But there's got to be a better way than than this, like, kind of heavy-duty investment, travel, you know, take-your-entire-summer-away experience.
3: Well, and, and you know, this this goes to the overall environment. And I completely agree with you, Wood, but, you know, a lot of people have Seen this as a complete money grab, Um, and and parents get sold, you know, a bill of goods because some high-profile lacrosse star all of a sudden is affiliated with this club program and now says, "Hey, come play with us, and you'll play against the best, and we'll make you we'll make you better." And you know, it's frustrating to me as somebody who runs a club program, not for money. I, I, I barely make any money, you know, charging kids because, you know, for a lot of reasons, but it, it's, it's frustrating to, you know, not be able to talk to, get, knock some sense into parents or kids and say, just come here and play here and, or play this and, or join this league and you will get better. And it, it it's just unfortunate that the sport has kind of moved in this direction, um, and that's where we are now.
0: Well, listen, um, I'll, I'll finish things up here by saying uh, as long as you're the guy who is working with kids and, and helping them understand the game, I have a firm belief that we're going to have better players coming out of the Brian McLaughlin system. Uh, uh, you know, knowing you as I do, uh, you are a patient, intelligent uh, caring guy. And that's what all these kids, regardless of their age, need uh, in a coach and, and really a mentor. So I, I thank you for being a high school coach. I thank you for, I thank you for being part of a youth program. And, and hopefully, uh, you know, we can see some great results when, when the kids get back on the field
3: yeah thanks what it's, it's been great talking to you i i obviously love the sport i love what you're doing for the sport um your involvement over the you know god since you know you played and, and your involvement with connie and everything you know likewise right back at you we need more people like you in the, in this as well so we'll be we'll be fine if that happens
0: all right take care brian all right Wood. be good i'll talk to you man You know, as we continue to talk to people around the state of Connecticut who mean so much to the game of lacrosse, it strikes me that it's people like Brian McLaughlin who very well could be the most important to the future growth of the game. Here he is in a town like Stratford, which while they have had their share of quality players that went on to play at the high school and college level, the fact of the matter is none of those kids went to Stratford High School or Bunnell High School. And that's really the challenge. For those two schools to generate a competitive level of play in the SWC or even on a statewide basis, it's going to take building that foundation, sending kids to those high schools, and making sure that the legacy of what Stratford lacrosse could be starts to get built now so that in the future there's something for all those kids to shoot for when they think about themselves being lacrosse players. I'm Woody Thompson. You've been listening to Lax's Life. Thanks very much for joining us today.